Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Lefty Program at the Victorian Labor College. In the studio is John Lefty. Morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. Now, John, you're going to kick off today, aren't you? Yeah, I was going to kick off today, and it's not a light subject, this one, but um, it's something which took place uh, a little while ago on that, so a week before last. But um, on the 20th of October this year, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said this in a speech to the 37th Zionist Congress. He was referring to events of November the 28th, 1941. Quote, The Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini, flew to Berlin. Adolf Hitler didn't want to exterminate the Jews at the time. He only wanted to expel the Jews. Al-Husseini said, But if you expel them, they'll come to Palestine. Hitler asked, So what should I do with them? And Al-Husseini replied, Burn them. And we know this. The Jews seek to destroy the Temple Mount. Now, this is not the first time that Netanyahu has referred to the wartime mufti in this way. In 2012, he labelled al-Husseini as a leading architect of the final solution. It is true that the mufti was pro-Nazi. Greeting Hitler with a friendly Sikh heil in November 1941 is enough proof of that. So it was a royal family. Good to see that photo. Well, not in November 1941. <laughs> no, no, no. And he did offer up Palestinians for the Nazi cause. However, as former Egyptian leader Anwar Sadat said, quote, It is simple. The Germans are the enemy of our enemy, England, so we supported them. A little bit too simple, obviously, but many others did make similar mistakes. For example, on hearing of Hitler's death in 1945, mm. the Irish leader Eamon de Valera sent his condolences on behalf of the Irish people to the German embassy. Really? Whoops. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> really? Oh, duh, you know. <laughs> Netanyahu's comment was ludicrous. Even Australia's former Prime Minister Tony Abbott wouldn't have come out with anything so deranged, although at times he has come close, and even mm -hmm. this week. This comment of Netanyahu's has had the effect of uniting Germans, Arabs and Jews in a condemnation of it. The day after his speech to the Zionist Congress, Netanyahu himself went to Berlin. Uh, I think it was too coincidental, but anyway. He stood beside German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and Angela Merkel had this to say, quote, on behalf of the German government and myself, I can say that we know who was responsible for this break with civilization, which was the Shoah or the Holocaust. We are convinced that this must be passed on time and time again to future generations through, for example, school education. We do not, want, we do not see any reason to change our view on the history of this particular question. We stand by the belief in Nazi German responsibility for the Holocaust, our Shoah. Well, Netanyahu's in fact letting the Nazis off the hook, isn't he? It's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's not, you know Hitler's not responsible, really. He's only been led by the Mufti. Yes, you know, yes, it's, yes, it's, yes, It's absurd. Yes. You read Mein Kampf just for a start, and that's back in the 1923. You know? yeah, that's right, that's yeah. right. The chief historian at Hitler's memorial to the Holocaust, well, listen to this quote, Israel's memorial to the Holocaust is Professor Dina Porat. 
She too criticised Netanyahu, saying, quote, You cannot say that it was the Mufti who gave Hitler the idea to kill or burn the Jews. It's not true. Their meeting occurred after a series of events that point to this. Now, the this that she refers to is the Nazis' actual initiation of the mass extermination of Jews, which the vast majority of historians would agree was well underway at least months before November 1941, and I'll get to that. The Israeli opposition leader is Isaac Herzog. He said, This is a dangerous historical distortion. It minimises the Holocaust, Nazism and Hitler's part in our people, the Jewish people's terrible disaster. The Palestine Liberation Organisation also put out a statement saying, quote, It is a sad day in history when the leader of the Israeli government hates his neighbour so much that he is willing to absolve the most notorious war criminal in history, Adolf Hitler, mm. of the murder of six million Jews. Now, it would be tempting to dismiss Netanyahu's ramblings as a spectacular case of foot and mouth, a ridiculous own goal which he didn't mean. And I was thinking this perhaps myself. You know, he just slight stuff up. He just went, went off script somehow. Oh, I don't. But, I don't. I think the depth of their hatred yeah. for the Palestinians. I mean, the difference between imperialism and this... Settler imperialism, which is what the Israelis is. Normally imperialism wants to get the locals, the local usually dark-skinned people, to work for imperialism, to cheap provide cheap labour. And The Israelis don't want that from the Palestinians. They want to get rid of them. Well, get rid of them. They want to get rid of them completely. Mm. And ideally they would love to be able to expel them all from, from Israel. I don't think there's any doubt mm. about that. So it's... And they have no intention at all. The two states theory is dead, dead, dead. So it, it does look like he, um, he meant it, and you, know, you, you really have to wonder about that. In his joint press conference the following day when he was speaking with Merkel, he did try to downplay the comments, but he didn't retract them, and he certainly didn't apologise. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu is currently serving his fourth term as Israeli Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. He is a very calculating politician. It may be the case that he is being deliberately provocative to incite violence from both sides of the Israel-Palestine conflict. It could be that he is preparing his Israeli defence forces to once again mow the lawn, just as they did last year in Gaza. And more the lawn is an expression Zionists, some Zionists use when they attack Palestinians with the full force of their war machine. Netanyahu's popularity does have a tendency to go up when he engages in these violent campaigns. Right, it's, right. He's good he, for his popularity. Oh, he's, you know, plays, he's he's tough, right? plays onto the fears. Hmm. Hmm. Just for the record, though, just to remind ourselves of why Netanyahu is wrong, we can look at, a, well, a very brief look at the timeline of the Holocaust. Obviously, I don't have that much time. The Nazis got into power in Germany in January 1933. They engaged in repressive member, me measures against their political enemies almost from the start, mainly against militant unionists, socialists and communists who were the obvious political yes. threat to them. The first concentration camp of Dachau was opened in March 1933. This is within two months. Yes. And was followed by Sachsenhausen, Buchenwald, Flossenburg and more before 1938, the Anschluss with Austria, when camps were also established outside of Germany. The Nazis from the first were deeply anti-Semitic and wanted to rid Germany and Europe of all the Jews. In 1933, an agreement between the Zionist Federation of Germany and the Nazi government resulted in the deportation of about 60,000 German Jews to Palestine, which was then a British mandate. 
The Palestinian Mufti was opposed to British rule in Palestine and also to Jews arriving en masse in this land. His collaboration with the Nazis, not that I'm in any way... Supportive, Oh, in any way, I apologise, man. But his collaboration with the Nazis would follow from this. The whole idea of my enemy is, you know, you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. My enemy's enemy is my friend. Bloody ridiculous notion, I think, but anyway... However, if we are to believe Netanyahu, we are to believe that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis took advice on German social policies from the Palestinian Mufti. Also, we are being asked to believe that the Holocaust, or at least the mass extermination of the European Jews, didn't take place until after 1941. That's what he's saying. There is a wealth of evidence to prove this theory wrong, and I'll just detail some of the evidence. On January 30th, 1939, Hitler gave a speech to the Reichstag where he stated, if war erupts, it will mean the extermination of European Jews. Very famous speech. Germany invaded Poland on September the 1st of that year. Britain and France declared war on Germany and the European theatre of World War II began. Now, with the invasion of Poland, Jewish ghettos were established. The Lotz ghetto was sealed in May 1940. 165,000 people were crammed into an area of just four square kilometres. The Warsaw Ghetto was sealed with 400,000 people inside, nearly half a million people trapped in a tiny space of just 3.4 square kilometres. Most of these people would be killed by the war's end. Following the invasion of the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941, the Einsatzgruppen, or extermination squads, were established by the Nazis. Between July and August 1941, this is well documented, that in nine Polish and Soviet towns, a total of over 60,000 Jews were killed by these extermination squads. 148,000 Jews were estimated murdered in Bessarabia between July and October 1941. On September the 28th, 34,000 Jews were massacred at Babi Yar outside Kiev. And in October, a second camp at Auschwitz was established to deal with the growing number of victims. October 1941. All of these events took place before the Mufti al-Husseini's visit to Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler and the Nazis needed no advice or encouragement for the, from the Palestinian Mufti. From a racial inferior? Yeah. Or, I don't think he would have ever said that to his face. Though. I wouldn't have said that, but they would have thought it for certain. <laughs> would have, yeah, ben, Benny's back. They didn't need any advice or encouragement from the Palestinian Mufti or anyone else in order to commit genocide. The Holocaust was well underway before the November 1941 meeting took place. Benjamin Netanyahu, what is Benjamin Netanyahu, 60, 65? He's steeped in the history of Zionism and the Shoah as he is. He knows these facts. And yet, for what appears to be some short-term political expediency, he has chosen to ignore these facts. He has chosen to insult the memory of those who died. Now, this man, Netanyahu, is due to visit Washington on November the 9th to meet with President Obama to discuss the U.S. providing Israel with up to $45 billion in weapons over the next decade. I mean, it's, it, this is an ongoing thing. This has been this, the, the numbers are absolutely staggering, the amount of money and weaponry that is uh, sold by the U.S. to Israel. Netanyahu will also be picking up an award from the American Enterprise, uh, Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank, and apparently there's some other so-called progressive organisation which wants to throw him an award. Ridiculous. 
Netanyahu has long been recognized as a war criminal. He now sits very close to Holocaust deniers with his rewriting of history. It's hard to stomach this man being treated as he is being, treated with such respect from the world's leaders when he acts with such callousness. He may be trying to use the memory of this terrible history to incite hatred and violence today. More than just being condemned, he should be forced to resign. Absolutely. I mean, I think what, what's got to be understood is that Zionism, which is the supposed uh, having a national home for the Jews in Israel, needs anti-Semitism. It needs anti-Semitism because if Jewish people integrate successfully, like they have in Australia, for example, where's the appeal of Israel? And where's the persecution that they're meant to be fleeing? Because Israel was meant to be a safe haven for the world's Jewish people. But it depends on there being anti-Semitism. So perversely, Zionism is not hostile to anti-Semitism because it's that that justifies Zionism. And... There is, as you point out, they, they, there were agreements struck between the Zionist leadership mm-hmm. prior to the war yeah. and the Nazis during the war. 1933. In 1933 and subsequently, whereby, uh, whereby the vast majority of Jews would be abandoned to their fate in Germany and certain number of Zionist Jews would be allowed to travel to, to Israel. Now, the, the priority of establishing Israel was more important then defending the Jews in Germany. Because, it, and prior to Hitler coming up, the Jews in Germany had been 1% of the population and they'd been totally integrated into Germany. But the thing is, when it comes to these comments, I mean, is this good politics? You're saying he's playing to his uh, constituency. I mean, his constituency, the people who vote Likud or have voted Likud in the past and he would hope they would vote Likud in the future, I mean... Surely they're looking at these comments and they're saying, well, wait, okay, maybe the palace, the, the, the Mufti was Nazi, pro-Nazi mm. or even a Nazi, but, I mean, to actually say that he initiates the Holocaust is ridiculous. It's a total rewriting of history. So aren't they going to look at Netanyahu and at least think he's losing well, his you'd mind? Well, you'd think they'd say, well, no, because for the same reason you might look at the Liberals and say that this business about stopping the boats and stopping the refugees is built on demonising the victims. Yeah, I don't think it goes as far as this. I mean, I, I've seen some ridiculous comments from politicians through the years, but this really surprised me. <laughs> it really surprised me that, I mean, a leader of Israel would actually rewrite this history. Absolutely, which is central not. history, central historical fact for Jewish people. I know, it's hard to But this is, this is Zionism. Zionism hurts Jewish people. Hmm. Zionism is not good for Jewish people. It doesn't help them integrate. It doesn't help them achieve full citizenship and equality and freedom of religion at all. And a lot of the most Jewish people, including a lot of the most religious Jewish people, go along with that. Well, that's right. Although it's interesting that the extremely... um, extremely conservative sections of the Jews actually oppose Zionism. Hmm. The really, really hard-line uh, fundamentalist Jews actually oppose Zionism. Can I mention the free trade agreement stuff now? Or? Well, let, let me just okay, deal we'll with South, South China because right. I don't think I'll be that long. Well, as you probably know, the, the United States has launched a reckless military provocation against China by sending a naval vessel within the 12-mile limit surrounding islands claimed by China in the South China Sea. Uh, China has, in fact, reclaimed land from the sea there and constructed facilities on some of these reefs. 
Now, according to US sources, China wasn't informed about this, uh, about this move, about the Navy vessel, and no incident actually occurred. In other words, the Chinese didn't respond in an aggressive way. The brazen and aggressive character of the US operation is underscored by the fact that it's been undertaken in the total absence of military activity against the US by China. It's not like the Chinese have attacked anybody. Rather, it assumes a form of a preemptive strike by the Americans aimed at humiliating the Chinese regime and placing it in a situation where it either confronts the US Navy or bows down to Washington's repudiation of China's decade-old territorial claims. Bullying, bullying at the highest level. That's right, in the strategic South China Sea. According to an unnamed US defence official who provided a briefing on the operation, the deployment of the USS Lassen is not a one-off, but the start of a series of provocations. The US actions vastly raise the threat of a military clash with China and the danger of a war between nuclear-armed states that would draw in every country in the region and beyond. Especially this one. Indeed. The US excursion into the region is the outcome of a sustained campaign by the American military under the bogus banner of freedom of navigation, end of quote, accompanied by lies that Washington is upholding the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, U-N-C-L-O-S, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. The hypocrisy of this assertion is laid bare by the fact that the US doesn't even recognise UCLOS. So they're quoting somebody that they don't agree to. <laughs> I don't know UCLOS. The assertion that ter- Chinese territorial claims in the South China Sea and the reclamation projects of the recent period are a threat to the commerce is absurd. China can have no possible interest in dampening the free flow of goods in the region because it's the lifeblood upon which the Chinese economy depends. Them more than anyone. The US provocation is motivated by imperialist calculations that the very economic growth of China over the past three decades is now the most significant threat to Washington's global dominance. A graphic expression of the forces driving US actions was contained in a recent tweet by US Republican Party president candidate Ben Carson, a black American who has views to the right of anybody in the Republican Party as far as I can see. It featured a photograph of a US aircraft carrier accompanied by the caption, This is how to compete with China. You chinky poos, <laughs> then we've got you. Gunboat diplomacy. That's right. <laughs> the real reason for the operation is not to defend freedom of the seas and airspace, but to assert the unfettered right of the United States to organise and prepare military operations against ch- key Chinese defence and military establishments on the mainland and on the South Hanan Island. In a way, it is similar to the British gunboat diplomacy, you know, of sailing up the Yangtze and showing the flag just to say we have freedom of movement. Yes. Although yes. There w- it wasn't actually international waters, it's inside of China. Well, that's only But a it's getting close. We're getting close. <laughs> During his private discussions with Obama and publicity, uh, Z, how do you pronounce ZI? XI. XI, I think. He, she, yeah. he, he continued to insist on China's claims in the region and their right to undertake construction on islands and reefs, a practice, we might add, carried out by other claimants to the disputed territories, including the Philippines and Vietnam, who have both done the same thing. At the same time, 
he declared that Chinese construction in the region did not target or impact on any country and China does not intend to pursue militarisation. The official Chinese position is that where the military facilities are installed, they're necessary for defence. This is under conditions where the US Navy and the Air Force conduct daily military activities in the region and the US military's air-sea battle plan envisages utilising its ability to operate in the South China Sea to launch a massive attack on the Chinese mainland. Failure to securing a backdown by the Chinese leader, Obama stated at a joint news conference that the US would, quote, continue to sail, fly and operate anywhere that international law allows. Mm. And one might imagine where international law does not Doesn't allow. allow, but that's just uh, following, accidental. Of course, following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the United States recognised that in order to maintain its position of global dominance, <laughs> it would need to conquer and recolonise vast areas of the world that had been closed off to it by the Russian and the Chinese revolution. Washington's military drive has produced one disaster after another, to which it has been responded by the launching of further wars and regime change operations. Afghanistan, Libya, Syria. Amongst the growing debacle of its Middle Eastern policy, US imperialism has responded by setting out on the road towards a war with China. The purpose of the, the response of the Beijing regime to Chinese threats is, of course, deeply reactionary. It sought to answer US imperialism with counter-threats, with a military build-up and the promotion of Chinese nationalists. As the representative of the Chinese capitalist class, it is hostile to any effort to to unify and mobilise the working class against the dangers Mm. of war. The decision to risk war by challenging China was made by a war cabal in the US military and foreign policy establishment. This operates without any democratic accountability behind the backs of the American people, who are overwhelmingly opposed to the war policies of this government. And I don't think there's the slightest doubt in this country that the vast bulk of the people are opposed to the war policies of this government. Yeah, we need to have a peace movement, though. We, we need do. to get that back. And it liquidated, it's amazing, after a massive, massive demonstration, which you probably went on and I went on in, what, 10 years ago? 2003. The uh, anti-war movement, died. For months, top officials of the US Pacific Command have been waging a public campaign denouncing Chinese land reclamation in the South Chinese Sea. Insofar as Obama was involved at all, it was to give the final stamp of approval for the operation. Over the past five years, Washington has transformed what were major, minor territorial disputes in a cause belly for war against China. In other words, an excuse for war. Yes, cause belly. Yeah. Encouraging and assisting the Vietnamese and the Philippines in particular to challenge the Chinese. This di- diplomatic offensive has gone hand in hand with new basing arrangements with China and the Philippines and the strengthening of deten- defence ties throughout the region and military deployments to ensure that 60% of US naval and air assets are located in the Indo-Pacific by 2020. Yesterday's dispatch of the US Larsen into Chinese claimed waters is the first phase of Pentagon war plans to counter what it claims is China's tactic of anti-excess denial. Its operations are part of a broader air-sea battle strategy that envisages a devastating air and missile 
assault on the Chinese mainland if China uh, retaliates. While its response is largely defensive in character, the actions of the Chinese regime are utterly reactionary. They're incapable of making any appeal to the working class in China or internationally. Mm. The bureaucratic apparatus in, in Beijing, which represents the old interests of a tiny, ultra-wealthy layer of oligarchs, resorts to militarism and the whipping up of Chinese nationalism, thus heightening the danger of war. Well, last time I saw President Xi, as I think, he yes. was clinking champagne glasses with a queen well, Oh, right, right. <laughs> This is where he is at. An editorial in the hawkish, stained-owned Global Times yesterday called on the Chinese leadership to prepare for the worst and show the White House that it is not frightened to fight a war with US in the religion. So, you know, uh, understandably, perhaps the Chinese are uh, responding with aggressive noises to what is obviously a, a very aggressive action by the United States and ultimately... It will involve us because, as loyal allies, do you want to take on China? Do you see any point in taking on China? The Australian government and the Australian Labour Party, as far as I know, is lockstep with the United States on this. There is no criticism whatsoever of this. So wherever we get Labour or Liberal in power... If the US is doing it, we are there. Oh, this, this, this is the way it is at the moment that's right, anyway. That's right. Uh, speaking yeah. about China, because we still ha- are able to... St- Go back to what you, you... You had something else you wanted to talk about. Free trade agreement with no, China. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, please. Uh, so, yeah, we... we, we the, our business class still does... Uh, you know, it still does business with the Chinese uh, ruling class. Their business elite... Uh, I got an email uh, about a week or so ago, and it, the email was from uh, Bill Shorten and the Labour Party... And the headline in the email was this, a win for workers. Well, you know, a win for workers. So, you know, pop the champagne, right? Bill Shorten's mouth, you'd wonder. Yeah, (laughs) anyway. So, a win for workers. And apparently the win for workers is, uh, you know, the the ALP brag about a victory that they, the ALP, have won for us, the workers, regarding the free trade agreement with China. So, apparently the ALP has stitched up a deal with the coalition where they have managed to get a couple of minor concessions on this uh, free trade agreement bill, and as a result, they voted for its passage through the House of Reps. I expect that a safe passage through the Senate will, or maybe has been, I don't follow the news that well, but it may have already been, and this anti-worker bill will become law. Bill Shorten has a very long track record of stitching up deals with business and then trying to convince the workers that he's fighting for us. If he ever did become Prime Minister, he'd be Bob Hawke plus. You know, he, he speaks out of two sides of his mouth at once, this guy. Well, Hawke managed but, to do that. Yeah. But, but this, uh, the strange thing is, right, the, the ACTU is normally pretty close with the Australian Labour Party. However, they, and I got an email from them last week regarding the free trade agreement, they've been opposing it. They've been totally opposing this. And um, last on, week... On what grounds? on the grounds that it's anti-worker, mm-hmm. it's pro-business uh, to a ridiculous degree. Uh, now, their email was um, mentioned debates which were coming up. They're all around Australia, but there was three in uh, Victoria. I think one was in Werribee, I think it was. There was another one in Frankston on Wednesday, and there was one in Ringwood last night. Now, I, I wanted to get to the one in Ringwood. I wasn't quite able to do that, right? But... I contacted the RSLs and I contacted the ACTU to see if these meetings were still going ahead, these debates, because we're going to have um, 
you know, political representatives, like in Frankston, it was going to be the Liberal Party's minister, ex-minister for small business, Bruce Bilson, and they were going to have a member from the, the trade unions, including right. Dave Oliver, who's, I think, the number two there. And uh, I thought that these meetings might be cancelled following the LP's rollover. But in fact, these meetings went ahead. The one in Frankston went ahead on Wednesday, and the one in Ringwood went ahead last night. Right. So I'm led to believe the ACTU is still campaigning against the free trade agreement. Fairly quietly, you'd have to say. Yeah, fairly quietly. <laughs> yeah, you got you got you got to get these emails sent out. Oh, you know, I see. But it just seems to. I, I, I'm not seeing much about it in the media, but it seems to be that there's some disagreement. The ACTU is right on it. Looks like it's going to become law anyway, but the ACTU is right on this. And if anyone knows or went to any of these meetings, I'd be very interested to hear from you. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.